Well, if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Uh, I think it's safe to say that uh, some of us were not looking forward to this passage in Luke 4 because it reminds us of how often we fail regarding temptation. We've heard the passage taught in Sunday school and preached from pulpits, and in many cases it's presented as a how-to to overcome temptation. Jesus is presented as an example, as our prime example, and we as Christians are exhorted to do what Jesus did. And unfortunately, we fail to do what he did. All too often, we fail to do what he did. Now, we don't simply miss the mark. We do, uh, in many cases, the exact opposite. And as a result, we, we carry this burden on our backs. And it weighs us down to the point, in some cases, that we grow hopeless. And in other cases, simply give up and don't even try. And I want you to know that Jesus does, does give us an example. In this passage, and we would do well and would benefit greatly if we followed it. And in fact, that's going to be a takeaway. Before we're done, I'm going to come back to that and draw our attention to it as we wrap up. But that is not the main point of this passage. It's not the main point, and I believe that because Luke has been purposeful. Luke has been very specific and even skillful in his placement of the genealogy between the baptism and here in the temptation. You'll remember, I hope, that last week I said that by taking on the likeness of men, Jesus entered into the fallen humanity that he came to save. He came to redeem Adam and all of his entire line. That line that he has plunged into sin. And Jesus came to do what Adam failed to do. And he came to do it for Adam and, and those in Adam. Those like us. Who also fail to do what we are to do. And as the Son of God who is truly God and truly man. He, he was and is a universal representative. In the head of humanity. He was and is the second Adam. He was and is the new Adam. And therefore, what we read here in the beginning of chapter 4 and what Jesus did, he did for us. He did on our behalf. He did representing us in our place. His victory is our victory. And it is because of our what he did over those 40 days and nights he did for us. And it is our union with him. And it is his obedience that's been imputed to us and credited to us, credited to us 
that provides both our ability and the power and motivation to follow his example to resist Satan and flee temptation. If we jump, which is often the case, if we jump to what we should do without fully understanding what he has done for us, our efforts will come to naught. So our outline this evening, we're going to look at three points. First, I want to draw your attention to the enemy, the nature of the enemy, who's real and though limited, very cunning. Second, I want us to see the nature of the temptation that revolves around our insecurities. And then third, we'll see the nature of the victory, which involves the Spirit, the Word of God, and for us, the work of Christ. So the nature of the enemy, the nature of the temptation, and the nature of of the victory, and as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Uh, Father, the end of preaching is to know Christ and to impart truth, for in Him, in Him alone is fullness of life and strength. So in these moments, would you awaken our attention and refresh us? And convict us and comfort us as we see him. And as always the case, I desire to preach, but admit that I am weak and needy and, and am unable to do that in and of myself. So would you grant me your support and strength and holiness that I might be a pure channel of your grace? I pray these things in the name of and for the sake of Christ and his church. Amen. Amen. Well, as you heard Matt read uh, just a moment ago, Luke is very clear, and he calls the enemy say, uh, the devil. In Matthew's account, he adds uh, the title Satan and the tempter. Uh, we read in other places of Scripture that he's called the prince of the power of the air, the old serpent, the great dragon, the roaring lion. The accuser of the brethren. And regardless of what he's called, the same is true. He is, in fact, real. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not a character of folklore. He is not uh, an alter ego that's a part of our own psyche. And he's also not a long-tailed red, tight-wearing, pitchfork-carrying miniature that sits on our left shoulder. He's real. He's a tempter. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's an oppressor. He's a perverter of truth and an imitator, especially of an angel of light. So the truth of the matter is he's not that grotesque figure like Freddy Krueger that would startle us and frighten us and strike fear in our hearts. But rather, his outward appearance would be inviting and would actually be pleasant. He would be pleasant to look at and would put us at ease. But fortunately, he's limited. Right? He He's not self-existent. In other words, he's been created. He is not sovereign. He's not omniscient. He's not 
uh, omnipotent. He has power, but he doesn't have all power. And he's not omnipresent. That's why Paul would say that he's in need of the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil by his side and assisting him. Because he can't be everywhere by himself all the time. But despite his limitations, he's very, very cunning. He's shrewd and devious and wily and a very subtle foe who lies, deceives, accuses, and entices and creates doubt. My friend uh, Ted Winger say, says that he will, he will tempt and then he'll turn around and punch you in the face when you follow through. This was the enemy that Jesus was led to face. And I say he, he was led to face because after being baptized, again, remember where this is, uh, where the genealogy was placed. So after he was baptized, and after the sky opened, and the Holy Spirit came upon him and anointed him and equipped him and empowered him as a human being for ministry, and after he heard the Father say, This is my son. Like, this is the one who is in a special relationship with me. This is my son whom I love. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Having heard that, that same spirit that had descended upon him and equipped him, led him in the wilderness to face death. So like Israel, just like Israel was led into and tested in the wilderness, Jesus, the true Israel, is led into the wilderness and tested. But unlike Adam, unlike Adam who was tempted by Satan in the garden on a full stomach with all of the fruit except for one tree, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. By the way, Adam being tempted in paradise, but Jesus being, being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days during the time he did not eat. He did what Adam couldn't do. Satan went to paradise to confront Adam. He won. And humanity was thrown into the wilderness. Jesus goes to the wilderness, confronts Satan, wins, and begins to lead his people back to paradise. And in verses 3 to 12, we see the nature of that temptation. The language indicates, you'll notice it, it indicates that Jesus was tempted throughout the 40-day period. So it wasn't like he was in the wilderness for 40 days, and then on that last day, Satan decides to come. No, Satan had been tempting him throughout that 40 days, throughout the 40 days in which he was not eating. And it all culminated then with these three temptations that focus on God's provision and his purposes and his protection. But all of those, those three can all come under one umbrella because ultimately the goal was the same. Remember, again, Jesus has just heard that he is 
the only begotten Son whom the Father loves and with whom the Father is pleased. And Satan wastes no time in seeking to sow doubt in the mind of Jesus and to sow discord between Jesus and the Father. And we know that because of the opening line of the first and third temptations, right? If you are the Son of God. Matthew, by the way, has that in all three. If you are the Son of God, the ultimate goal was for Jesus to doubt the Father's words and who the Father said that he was. Satan wanted Jesus to doubt. Doubt who he believed himself to be. And to act in a way that was contrary to the will of God. And that was inconsistent with who he was as the Son of God. But notice, while cunning, he's not very creative. Because he does hear what he did in the garden. The same thing that he did in the garden, he now does in the wilderness. He apparently believed, well, if it worked the first time, it'll sure work this time. But of course he's wrong. Very, very wrong. The first temptation is found in verse 3. It involves God's provision. Satan says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And we, we could put it this way. Jesus, if you are the Son of God, exert your independence and feed yourself. Or to put it another way, are you really, are you really the Son of God? Would the Son of God be hungry? If the Father really loved you, would he leave you out here into the middle of nowhere without food? If you are God's son and he loves you, don't you have the divine right to eat? And if you don't have any food, don't you have the ability to make it yourself? Apparently, Apparently the Father isn't, he's not going to take care of you. He's not going to provide for your needs. You need to do it yourself. You have the ability to eliminate your suffering to it. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. In the midst of his hunger and weakness, he responds, matter of fact, it is written. And immediately we know he is not going to doubt the word of his God. He's not going to doubt the word of God. And he, he then quotes the first half of Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, man does not live by bread alone. And he, he uses that for a number of reasons, but it's interesting, through the word man, he reiterates what we've already said and already mentioned last week and this week, and that is he's experiencing this temptation as a human being. He's not standing up in the face of this temptation uh, in his divine power, he's standing up in the midst of this temptation in human weakness. And it wasn't easy for him to do. And he did it. Right? We've said this for several weeks now, and even back in our study of Hebrews, right? He, he did this because he was made like his brothers in every respect. He became... Uh, he himself became a man and was tempted 
in every way like his brothers and like us. Why? To help those who are being tempted. The, the difference was he was tempted and yet without sin. I was talking to a gentleman just before everybody showed up tonight outside and he asked what I was preaching on. I said, Luke chapter 4, verse 13, verses 2. Oh man, he was so much stronger than I, I am. And I said, Yeah. And he did it for you. He was without sin. So, as a man, he says, There's more to life than food, there's more to life than bread. There are more important things. And the question we ask is, What? What is more important than food? And for the answer, we have to go back to the second half of verse 3 of Deuteronomy 8 that Luke doesn't quote, but Matthew does. And it says, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word was and is more important than bread. No matter how hungry he might have been, that was not going to change. His weakness had created an extreme hunger that you and I don't understand. Forty days. And yet, God's word was most important. He was trusting him. He was not doubting his father's word. He was not doubting what his father had said. He was not doubting what his father said about him. He was not doubting himself. Or how the Father felt about him. God had spoken. He believed it. Therefore, he was not going to take matters into his own hands. He wasn't going to exert his independence. And he refused to provide for himself. And he waited on the provision of his Father. The provision that would come to him. Philip Riker says, Jesus was deeply dependent on God and his word throughout his earthly ministry, and no physical craving ever led him away from the path of obedience. He did not gratify his own desires, but subordinated his needs to the will of his Father. He performed many miracles for the benefit of others, but he never abused his divine power by using it in the service of his own human Because again, we do the exact opposite. Not that we have divine power, but we seek to satisfy our needs. The second temptation is found in verse 6. Satan takes Jesus up, either in body or spirit, we're not quite sure. But he takes him up to a place where he could see all of the current, and I believe even the future, power and achievement and advancement of all the world's kingdoms. And all their splendor, the pomp and the circumstance and the power that's present. And he says to you, Jesus, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And this, of course, was a big fat lie. Right? This was not. For him to give, though he was powerful, and in some sense he was the ruler of the world, Jesus called him so in John chapter 12, but that he did not have the full authority to deliver on this offer. 
But that didn't stop him. He was determined. He, he was bound and determined to tempt Jesus to reject God's purposes. And all that Satan was offering right, was, in fact, rightfully Christ's. Uh, Jesus would one day rule. All power and authority would one day be given to him. He was the king. The kingdom was at hand. However, the path, the path he had to walk to receive it was vastly different than what Satan was offering and proposing. Satan was saying, you can have it right here, right now. If we were to put it in our in current, current word, right? You can have your best life right now. And that would have been very difficult to pass up because, again, remember, he's being tempted as a human and, and Jesus, though, knew the path that he was to walk. It was a path of hardship. It was a path of suffering. It was a path of rejection and shame, and scorn, and spitting, and scourging, and crucifixion, and death. So the offer was crossless. And all Jesus had to do was worship, subordinate himself to, align himself with God's enemy. He says, no. I'm not going to do it. It is written. And you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy, but chapter 6. And Jesus rests in what God has said and what God has commanded. He does not waver from the word of His Father, who alone is worthy of worship. And he doesn't break the first commandment. For Jesus subordinate, subordinating himself to and aligning himself with Satan was not an option. Because his sights were set on more than himself and himself as a king and himself as a king ruling an earthly kingdom. His sights were set on an eternal kingdom, but his sights were also set on the citizens of that kingdom, of which he would not lose one. And to receive the kingdom, he had to wait. He had to wait, which he did, and to save his people, he would have to endure the cross, which he did, really. The third temptation is found in verse 9. Satan, again, bodily, physically, not sure, takes Jesus to what many consider to be the royal porch of the temple that was on the southeast corner. It overlooked the Kidron Valley, some 450 feet below. And Satan says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. In other words, if you are the Son of God, if your Father loves you, He's not going to let anything happen to you, so child. 
You should land on your feet, but even if you don't, the angels will save you. And it sounds like, it sounds like he's encouraging Jesus to entrust himself to his Father. To, to entrust him to his Father's care, does it not? But it's not. It sounds like, look, put, your, put yourself in your father's hands. Don't fear, don't worry, depend on him. Your father won't let any harm come to you. He doesn't want you to, to come and, and he doesn't want you to suffer, extra, uh, experience any pain. But exactly, your worth. The problem was, God, the Father, had not told Jesus to do it. And the scripture Satan was using was out of context. So if he were to jump, he would actually be presuming upon the Father's protection. Which is why Jesus answered, again from Deuteronomy, it is said, you shall not put the word your God to the test. If Jesus, here, here's, very important, if, if Jesus had jumped and forced the Father to save him, who is now in control? Who is in charge and who is submitting him? Jesus had jumped and forced the Father's hand, the roles would have been reversed, and it would have been Jesus in charge and the Father who is now submitting. And Jesus says, No way. Not doing it. Jesus continued to trust what God had said about who he was. He continued to trust the Father and all that he had said about who he was, how he felt about him, what he wanted him to do. Remember, Jesus would one day put his life into his Father's hands. But when did he do that? At the cross. Right? Into thy hands. I can He would do it, but in the Father's time. So, Verse 13, Satan finds, says, all right, had enough, I'm out. But it's not for good. Notice he says, until an opportune time. So he comes back, and he regroups, basically. But he comes back, and we see him a couple of times, for sure, hiding behind Peter, and hiding behind Judas. And then we also... Uh, know that he's around also on the cross because what do the soldiers do as Christ is hanging on the cross? Same words. If you are the Son of God. Save yourself. And even then, he says so. Brothers and sisters, these, these three temptations, when we read them, they are specific to Jesus as the Son of God, as the second Adam. But Satan still, again, he's not created, so he continues to work in the same way. He, he continues to work now as he did then. And he moves back and forth between extremes and the things that he says and the ways that he tempts us. In regard to God, we, we know that there are times that he says that you know, God is, is not trustworthy. He's withholding what is good from you. There's so much more that he could give you, but he, he's not. And he doesn't want you happy. And 
The only way to be happy is if you disobey him. Or he goes to the other extreme and he says, look, if, if you want, uh, if God really loves you, you'd be healthy, wealthy, successful. You'd have everything you could possibly want. You'd be prosperous. And if you're not, he must He wants us to believe that God is never satisfied and always angry. Or the flip side, he wants us to believe that he's just a, a gray-haired grandfather who winks at our indiscretions. When we think about ourselves or our sin, he wants us, Satan wants us to believe that it's really that not big of, that big of a deal. Right? Sin is, it's not that offensive, particularly if it doesn't offend or hurt somebody else. He wants us to believe that sin is really only behavioral in nature. He doesn't want us to think that we're, we're corrupt, right? that every part of us has been, been touched by sin's corruption and that it involves our emotions and our thoughts and our wills as well. Sure, again, since the beginning, because he wants us to doubt judgment. Right? We won't surely die. We won't be punished for the things that we do, the things that we think, the things that, that or the actions that we that we partake in and lifestyles that we live. And in regards to ourselves, he wants us to believe that we're unlovable, that we're unacceptable, that we're failures, and that we can't do anything. We can't do anything right. We still sin. And the flip side of that is he, he wants us to think that our hearts are good and that we hold the keys of our justification. That we can make ourselves right with God. It's within us somewhere. He wants us to believe that doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing is really all that matters in life. And what makes that easier is that there is no absolute authority or absolute truth. So we define those things for ourselves. He wants us to believe that we're fully deserving and capable of fulfilling every desire that we have. And on our own, we don't need God to do that. We can depend upon ourselves. We don't need to depend on anybody else. And we definitely shouldn't have to wait. We, we deserve what we want, when we want it, how we want it, where we want it, with whom we want it. And in regards to others, he says we must look to them for acceptance and security we want to do everything that we can to keep from being rejected by them. Because if we are, it proves that we're pitiable. We want to believe that everything's hanging on others for our worth and our identity. And so whatever they believe is ultimate. And so we do whatever we can to please. It makes it so happy. Or, again, the flip side of that is he doesn't 
creates in our minds this idea that those who don't look like us, those who don't believe what we believe, those who don't do what we do, those who don't join the causes that we join, those that don't vote like we vote, and so on and so forth, are, are undeserving of respect and honor and equal treatment because they aren't simply wrong, they're evil. over and over and over we too are continually tempted to doubt who God is and to live contrary to who he has created us to be and who he's called us to be and who he's saved us to be we're tempted to doubt his provision we're tempted to doubt his purposes and his protection despite the inconsistencies and discrepancies in in this strategy that's thrown at us over and over and over again. He wants to sow doubt in our minds and he wants us, he wants to sow discord between us and our Heavenly Father and between one another. He's dead set on it. And of course the obvious questions are, what do we do? How do, how do we deal with this? How do we stand firm and resist the devil and flee temptation like James and Paul both say. We're instructed in Scripture. How do we do that? And as I mentioned, I want to come back around and mention Jesus did leave for us an example. He left an example. We too are led into tests in which Satan is allowed to tempt us to prove our faith. We must walk and depend upon His Spirit. His Spirit that indwells us. We depend upon the Spirit and walk by the Spirit. And what do we do? We wield the sword of the Spirit. Some of you will remember as we studied Ephesians chapter 6. Putting on the full armor of God. Wielding the sword of the Spirit. Because it's his word that tells us who we are. It tells us who he is. It tells us who we've been declared to be in Christ. His word tells us how we're to live and how we're to walk in a worthy manner. And so we, we read Psalm 119.11 from David and, and we said that makes sense. We, we need to do that. I, he says, I've stored your word up in uh, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word is important. But let us not forget the main point of the passage. Because our victory begins at the main point. Our victory begins, continues, and ends with Christ's victory for us. It is not possible apart from that. Jesus was led into the wilderness to do what Adam did not do and what you and I cannot do. He was victorious as our representative. He experienced and withstood the full weight of temptation. He, he underwent the furious onslaught of the devil and did so for you and for me. He did what only he could do in the midst of that onslaught, which was endure. He offered 
Because and because he did, right? Because he he endured those temptations, he was able to offer himself as a pure and spotless sacrifice on your behalf and mine. That our sins might be washed in. And, and what he did, his obedience in the wilderness has been credited to us. It's been imputed to us. His righteousness is ours. And his resistance and endurance and victory are that now enable us to resist and endure temptation as well. Our temptation is not unique. But we do not face it alone. We have His help by the Spirit and we can endure because He Himself provides a way of escape. Himself. We should not deny that Satan is in fact a formidable foe. He, he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And we should never, never take Him lightly but we should never fear him. We should not fear him. And our failure in our battle with temptation, or our battle with temptation, should not cause us to shrink back and give up as well. The presence of our foe and our failures should always send us into the arms of the Lord Jesus. It is to Him that we should run. We're not, brothers and sisters, we do not count on our ability to resist and endure and not give in to temptation to somehow in some way secure our redemption. Our redemption has been secured. We resist the devil and flee temptation as a result of Christ's victory over him for us. And it is the grace and gratitude that we have for His work on our behalf that should motivate us to not give up and not give in. That He fought the good fight and He ran the race and He won. We therefore should continue to fight the good fight and continue to run. May we always rest in Christ. No matter what the temptation might be, look to Jesus. Let's pray.